right, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. If you'll remember, uh, we are trying to take the book of Hebrews in five sermons. The goal here is to see if we can come to understand the book of Hebrews as a whole. And so we're walking through it together in five sermons. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to use your phone as long as you promise not to go on Instagram or Twitter in between verses. We have secret agents planted in the pews among you to watch and to see and to confront. Okay, now we read uh, chapters 3 and 4 together uh, in the service, and that's what we're going to do as we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews we're going to read the, the main bulk of the scripture that we're working with in the service. Uh, so just so you know, we're going to be touching all over chapters 3 and 4. So don't close your Bibles, keep them open and handy, ready to work through them. Uh, there's a lot going on in Hebrews chapter, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, and so it's no, it's no easy task for us to try to figure out how to get a handle on all of the content here. But I think we can do it. Uh, I think we can pull it off if we remember the pattern of teaching that we find in the book of Hebrews. The pattern is uh, teaching, exhortation, teaching, exhortation, teaching, exhortation. It's very much like a sermon. I teach, I give you theological truth, and then I tell you what it means for your life. That's what we see going on here with the book of Hebrews. So that's kind of what this morning's sermon is going to be like. It's going to be Puritanesque. The first half of the sermon is just me trying to walk us through these chapters to help us understand what, what's going on here, what the author of Hebrews is saying, and then we're going to see what it means for our lives. The second half is going to be uh, ex- exhortation application. Uh, before we get into all that, for the note takers, uh, I'm going to give you today's sermon in one sentence. So if you'd like to, to have like a thesis statement for your sermon, here it is, chapters three and four in one sentence. Moses led Israel into rest But Jesus, the greater Moses, is leading the church into a better rest. Moses led Israel into rest, but Jesus, the greater Moses, is leading the church into a better rest. We got that? I have eight points for you this morning. Uh, and I actually don't have them all listed up front, and even if I did, I would try to read them and you wouldn't get them all in your notes at, as you go. So just try to pay attention as I call them out as we work through the sermon. Uh, let me pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, if we try to come before you and grasp your word in, in our own power, according to our flesh, even if we have strong intellectual capacities, we, we may understand how words and thoughts fit together. We may understand how, how the text fits together. We may understand what the author is trying to say, but we won't see your word, Lord. We won't, we won't see Jesus high and lifted up as glorious. We won't, we won't see and savor your son, Jesus Christ, as we ought to. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, Lord. Would, would you please open our eyes to, 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 to help us so that we can see the full panorama of the glory of the gospel that you have for us in your word this morning. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Point number one. Jesus, the greater Moses. Now, if you remember in my introductory sermon to the book of Hebrews, uh, I said that over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews, we're going to see the author of Hebrews making the argument that Jesus is greater than, right? He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He's greater than the priesthood. He's making these arguments because these Jewish Christians are suffering persecution and they're considering giving up on Jesus in the midst of their suffering. And so they're considering going back to the old covenant ways. And the author of Hebrews is trying to say, listen, there's nothing for you back there because Jesus has come and fulfilled all of those things. Last week, we saw the first argument of that kind. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. 
And because Jesus is greater than the angels, the message that Jesus brings is greater than the message that the angels brought. Well, this week we're shifting gears from angels to Moses. This week's sermon is all about how Jesus is superior to Moses. And you see that at the very beginning of chapter 3 in verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. See that? He's greater than. He's been counted of worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So here we see Moses is lifted up high as a faithful servant of God, right? In the same way that angels were faithful uh, deliverers of the law, Moses was, excuse me, uh, communicators of the law, Moses was a faithful deliverer of the law. And because of his faithfulness, verse 3 implies that he deserves glory, okay? Think about a, a company that throws a retirement party for some guy who, you know, spent 40 years working there, and, you know, he really put in a lot of hours, did a lot of good work for the company, and now they're going to throw him that retirement party, right? Well, that, that party and hopefully the gold watch, I don't know if they still do that, right? It used to be if you had your retirement, you got a gold watch, you know, hopefully this, this whole shindig, uh, what, what's the purpose of it? Well, it's, it's to celebrate his commitment and his faithfulness to the company. And we kind of get a little bit of that right here with Moses, right? He was a faithful servant, and because of that, he is deserving of honor and glory. But the point that the author here is trying to drive home doesn't stop there. The point is that although Moses was deserving of glory... Jesus is deserving of more glory. Now, we're a bunch of Christians. We worship Jesus. This is kind of like a duh statement to us, right? It's kind of a truism. It's so true that perhaps it doesn't even need to be said. But you have to understand how revolutionary this would have been to hear as a person coming from a Jewish background. Greater than Moses? Moses the patriarch? Moses, who was specifically rescued by God as an infant and then sent later to go redeem God's people out of slavery and bondage. Moses, the one who led God's people out through the Exodus event, through the wilderness. The one who received God's law and delivered God's law to God's people. You're telling me that there's somebody who deserves more glory than Moses? That would have been hard. Even for a Christian coming from a Jewish background, it would have been hard for them to stomach. I mean, you remember what happened when Jesus said that he was greater than Abraham, right? Jesus says, hey, before Abraham was, I am. And at that, all the Jews picked up stones to kill him. This is a, an incredible thing for the author of Hebrews to be saying. Now, the question is, how much more glorious is Jesus than Moses? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. He gives us this metaphor. He says, he's as much more worthy of honor and glory as uh, the builder of a house is worthy of more honor and glory than the house itself. That's how much more. So, stealing from uh, an illustration from some of the women in my church who uh, are seeming like perpetually house shopping, right? You know what they say about women? They be shopping. All right. Uh, you know, they talk about these different houses, and, oh, I don't like that house, but this house I love, 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 right? Whatever it is about the house, you know, I love, love, love this house, Okay. Uh, and I have some houses like that on my street, you know, like I love my house and I'm happy to live there, but I, I walk down our street sometime and I look at the house, I'm like, that's a really nice house. I love the way they did that, right? What, what am I doing when I do that? Well, I'm giving honor to the house. I'm giving glory to it. Now, it should be obvious to all of us that the person who designed that house and built that house is worthy of more honor and glory than the house itself, right? Because the house hasn't always existed. At first, the house only existed inside someone's mind but then it had to be assembled and it's it obviously takes more to assemble a house to build a house to design a house 
than to just merely exist as a house that has been constructed. So by way of analogy, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is not just greater than Moses by degree, but also in kind. It's not just that Jesus was more faithful than Moses, although he was, but it's also that Jesus is in a separate category from Moses. Jesus is not the created thing. He is the creator. We already saw that in chapter 1, verse 2. Now, more amazingly, as we read on, we see in verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, and the builder of all things is God. So track with me. Track with me. First, he says, Jesus is the builder of the house. Then he says, only God is the builder of all things. You do some simple math here, and you see that the author is obviously talking about the deity of Christ. Now, we talked about this at length last week, so I'm not going to take us back down that road again. But, you know, this might be one of like 3,800 different places to annotate in your Bible if you're ever having an evangelistic encounter with a Jehovah's Witness or someone else who denies the deity of Christ. These are just the really simple scriptural proofs to just have highlighted in your Bible uh, for the sake of evangelism. Okay, now let's keep going. In verse 5, we read that Moses is a faithful servant in God's house. But that's all he is. He's just a servant. And, and what a joy it is to serve in the house of the Lord, right? Like, there's something diminutive when I say he's just a servant. But it's true. But it's still an honor. Okay, but he's just a servant in God's house. But Jesus is greater than that. Well, how much greater? Verse 6 tells us. It tells us that Jesus is faithful over God's house, not as a servant, but as a son. So picture for me, uh, picture with me for a moment, a wealthy family, okay? Husband, wife, three kids, and they have a house servant, okay? Uh, you wouldn't have to be that wealthy in other parts of the world to have a house servant. It's more common, but in America, you, you would. So, you know, for my American friends, imagine that you're wealthy and you have a house servant. Now, imagine that the parents have to go out of town, and they're going to take the two youngest children with them. But they're going to leave the oldest at home, the oldest son. He's 17. He's a big boy now. You, they can trust him. You know, dad's going to hide the keys to the Corvette, but they're still going to leave him at home in the house. Now, as they get ready to leave, they, they call the house servant and the oldest son. They call them together and they say, hey, listen, we're leaving, but we're going to leave you in charge. Okay? Now, both the son and the servant have an appointment. They both receive a charge from the Father. But that does not mean that they are the same. They are quite distinct. The charge, the responsibility that the Son has is obviously greater than the charge and responsibility of the servant. And that's what we see being said about Jesus in this morning's text. Now, we've talked a lot about the house, the house, the house that Jesus is Lord over, that 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 he's the son of, uh, excuse me, that he's the son of the father over the house. And we, we've also talked about uh, Moses being a faithful servant in that house. But what is this house? Well, that takes us to point number two. Point number two is the true church, the greater Israel. The true church, the greater Israel. Verse six tells us what the house is. Go, go and look at verse six. It says, at the very, the, the second half of verse 6, it says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in uh, our hope. We, we, that's the church, that's God's people. But now we have to ask the question, well, how do we know who's of the household? How do we know who's in and who's not in? Is it just anybody who professes to be a Christian? Well, if you've lived in the South long enough, you know that anybody who professes to be a Christian is not a Christian. There's a, there's a super abundance of people here who profess to be Christians who, in fact, do not know the Lord. So how do we know? Well, when we ask this question, uh, we find the author of Hebrews answers us by drawing a comparison between the old covenant people of Israel and the new covenant church. But before we go into that, let me give some historical background because I don't assume that everyone here knows the history of the old covenant people of Israel. You may be like me, and you grew up outside of the church, and, and you don't really know a lot of the Old Testament history. So let me give some background. 
Before the new covenant institution of the church existed, what we are here today this morning, there existed the old covenant nation of Israel. But Israel was not always a nation. First, they were a family. And their family was founded by their father Abraham. Abraham was a moon god worshiping pagan off living his own life. And the Lord called Abraham to himself. And he says, you are going to be mine. I'm going to be your God. And Abraham was like, okay. Now this is all the way back towards the beginning of Genesis. The Lord blessed Abraham. He gave him offspring and progeny. And the covenant continued. And the Lord built up the family. But by the time you fast forward all the way to the end of Genesis, things have gone horribly wrong. And all of God's people, all of the family of Israel, are found to be enslaved in Egypt. Now, the Lord loves his people. And because he loves them, he hears their cries and he rescues them. And he led them out of Egypt with many signs and wonders. And then he promised to give them rest, to take them to the promised land. And he did that. But it was a long, hard journey to get there. Forty years through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Now, during that time, you would think that like all of God's people were like, oh man, God, you're so amazing and you're so obviously, miraculously real. We're just going to love you and obey you and follow you until you take us home forever. But that's not what happened. The people sinned and rebelled against God in the wilderness. And because of that, many of them died in the wilderness. But there's more. You see, not everyone who actually traveled through the wilderness was part of Israel. Why do I say that? Well, when you understand that Israel, uh, so all of them were descendants of Abraham, but only those who share in the faith of Abraham are actually Israel. So during this time of testing in the wilderness, these trials and these temptations that they experienced, what they did was they revealed who actually had Abraham's faith and who didn't. They revealed who had hearts that belonged to the Lord and who didn't, who had hearts that were hardened in unbelief and rebellion. All of them had Abraham's blood coursing through their veins, but not many of them had Abraham's faith living in their hearts. And so verse 17 tells us, We'll start in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? If you look in chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see the author of Hebrews. There he makes this comparison between the church and the nation of Israel quite explicitly. Go there, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, for the good news came to us, Who's the us there? It's the church, right? So the the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And here we see the crux of the matter. In both the old covenant and in the new covenant, the household of God is only composed of those who have faith. Point number three, heaven, the greater promised land. Uh, God appointed Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage through the wilderness and into the promised land. And when, when you read the, the, the accounts of God promising this to his people, one of the things that you'll find is that over and over again, He talks about the promised land as a place of rest. And you see that over and over again in this morning's text, right? The promised land was supposed to be for the people of Israel as they escaped slavery and bondage and as they passed through 40 years in the wilderness, the promised land was supposed to be when they finally got their chance to rest. Now, this this story, this Exodus event, Moses rescuing the people, leading them through the wilderness, taking them into the promised land, This story is used by the author of Hebrews to teach us something about our lives and to teach the the audience here something about their lives. What he's saying is, in the same way that Moses led the people out of bondage through the wilderness into the promised land, Jesus is leading us, the church, 
through the spiritual wilderness, that is life in a fallen world, into the promised land, which is heaven. Look at, uh, look at chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Here's one of his main arguments. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, why is he talking about Joshua here? Well, you remember that Joshua is the one who actually led the Israelites into the promised land. It was supposed to be Moses, but Moses sinned and he wasn't able to complete the last leg of the mission that God had given him. So, so Joshua led the people of Israel into rest. Now, the point of these verses is that, listen, it should be obvious to you that the promised land was never designed by God to be the people of God's ultimate rest. How do you know that? Well, because even after the people enter the promised land, all these people keep talking about rest. God keeps telling them, hey, I have more rest for you. I have a better rest for you. And so when you read that, when you see that, when you hear that, you should understand that this promised land is rest, but it was never designed to be the ultimate rest. Let's just break it down even more. Let's just ask really simple, obvious questions, questions that maybe we would be afraid to ask in a classroom People would say, that's a dumb question. Well, it's not a dumb question here. Uh, what is rest? Well, chapter 4, verse 4 tells us. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Rest is where we cease from working. Now, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, on the Sabbath day, no less, on the day of rest, he proclaimed that to believe in him is to enter into God's final rest. All of this rest that all these people in the old covenant kept talking about, even after the people of Israel made it into the promised land, all of that rest, Jesus says, it's me. I am that rest. If you find me, you find rest. And so the author concludes his argument in verses 9 through 10. So then... So that's what, you know the author's wrapping it up, right? It's like a therefore. Therefore, so then, there remains a rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, there's a lot that can be said about a number of different topics from this morning's text. A lot. But you have to remember what we're doing here is trying to get a broad overview of the book of Hebrews. We're not trying to plumb the depths of every doctrine that's available here. If so, I would tell you that I think this morning's text is an absolute death blow to people who believe in Christian Sabbatarianism. That is, people who still think that there's a Christian Sabbath that just needs to be observed on Sunday instead of Saturday. I think this text is just quite clear that that's just not how we understand the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was something that was pointing ultimately to Jesus and that was fulfilled by Jesus. I also think these verses are fatal to dispensationalists who have an overly literal hermeneutic regarding Israel and the promised land. Now if you got those sermon notes, overly literal hermeneutic might be something you want to write down and ask about later. But basically a lot of, a lot of people who read the Bible in a certain way that views this land promise to Israel as a literal land promise and I think it's just pretty obvious from these verses that that's just not the way we understand promises to work, how they are fulfilled. But we're not going to get into any of that, although I'm fighting the urge to just dive in and do it right now, impromptu. But uh, with that in mind, uh, let's think about how to apply what we've just learned. Because really, let's keep it real. Uh, I just spent about, I don't know, maybe it feels like an hour, but I just spent like 20, 25 minutes giving you guys a lot of theology, Okay. But now we just need to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean for our lives? How is that going to help me follow Jesus more faithfully as a husband, as a wife, as a student, on the job? How is this going to help me get to heaven? Well, that's, that's where we're going to in the next part of the sermon. So, um, <coughs> in the second half of the sermon, we're getting into the exhortation. <coughs> now, you'll remember <coughs> that an exhortation, is, it's the same word as encouragement, but... Uh, it's almost always used in Hebrews as a warning, right? It's like, let me encourage you to not shipwreck your faith, right? Let me encourage you to not go to hell, okay? That's, that's kind of the way it's being used here. <coughs> now, last week, the exhortation was against drifting. Go back to chapter 2, 
verse 1. <clears throat> Last week it was, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Well, this week the exhortation is against falling away instead of drifting away. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That is our exhortation in the negative. Don't fall away. Now, to state it in the positive, uh, which the author of Hebrews does, we are told to hold fast. Right, so think about like our faith like a bar, right? And I'm trying to hang on to this bar with all of my might, right? The author is saying in the negative, don't let go. Don't fall away. You let go of the bar, you're going to fall. But he also says it positively. He says, hold fast. That is, get a death grip on this thing. And he says that in two places. Go to chapter 3, verse 6. He says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And then you can go to chapter 4, verse 14. He says it again. He says, since we have a high priest, excuse me, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, so you see there what we're supposed to hold fast to. What is it? It's our confession. Now, confession, this is not like, you know, a cop beating up a criminal in an interrogation room and so that he will admit to doing wrong. Confession is where we confess what we believe. We state it positively. We proclaim it unashamedly. And the, the, the risk here is for these people who are facing, facing persecution, the risk is that they will not hold fast to that confession, that they will give up on what they say they believe about Jesus. This is pretty simple to understand, right? If we confess that Jesus is Lord and that we submit our lives to him through repentance and faith, faith, then we must cling to, maintain, hold fast to that confession, even when times get tough. Even when tragedy strikes. Even when we experience persecution. Even when our marriage is on the rock even when we lose a child. We must hold fast to Jesus through infirmities, through poverty, and anything else that life and Satan and this world can throw at us. We must hold fast to Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, okay, great, uh, I know what to do, but now can you tell me how to do it, right? It's really easy for a preacher to stand up here and say, okay, hold fast, but to tell us how to hold fast is a completely different matter entirely. Thankfully, as I was preparing my sermon this week, I didn't feel pressure to come up with a program for you because the author of Hebrews tells us in these very verses how we can hold fast. And that's where we're going to be getting into the application point of, of the sermon. So point four. Point four. Consider Jesus. We can hold fast to Christ by considering him. You see this in chapter 3, verse 1. This is the very first thing he says as he begins this new train of thought. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, here we see the author of Hebrews doing something that we always see in the New Testament. Okay? We see these, we've talked about them before on our Wednesday nights. If you haven't been here, I'll explain. We talk about the indicatives and the imperatives of God's word. So the imperative is a command, do this or don't do that. And the indicative is like the reason why, right? Like, or the example of how you can not do this or do do that. And, and you never see these two things disconnected. There's always some kind of gospel motivation that God gives us when he calls us to obey his gospel commands. Okay, so if you were with us in Philippians, when we walked through Philippians chapter 2, Paul said some really hard things to them. He said, hey, you guys need to all be of one mind. I was hoping for like a gasp there. That's ridiculous. It's impossible. All be of one mind? That's incredibly difficult for a church, but that's what he said to do. And he said, well, how can you do it? He says, well, consider Jesus. 
who, did, who, who considered others as more important than himself. And how did he consider others more important than himself? Well, he was up in heaven with God, living the good life, but he came down, emptied himself, died a criminal's death on the cross to save us. And so he says, you see what Jesus did there? You do that. That's how you have one mind amongst yourselves. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing again this morning. He's saying, consider Jesus. Well, what, do you, what does he want us to consider about Jesus? He says that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And he says that he was faithful to him who appointed him. That's the father, just as Moses was faithful. And then if you turn over and you look back in chapter 4, verse 14, he does the same thing. He holds Jesus up as an example. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Well, what does that mean, pass through the heavens? Well, it means that he, he descended down through the heavens. He came on earth, had his ministry, was, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and then he rose again and passed through the heavens. The point there is that Jesus was faithful, right? Even through suffering, even through persecution, even through a criminal's death on a cross, Jesus was faithful. And so he says, friends, if you're wondering what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus, if you don't know wh- how you can hold fast, how you can cling even in the midst of suffering, Look at Jesus and look at the way that he held fast. Look at the way that he was faithful even in the midst of his suffering and you be like Jesus. Follow the example that you have in Christ. Point number five. We can hold fast to Jesus if we obey. Go to chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the disobedience of the people of God in Israel. And what we see from this verse, excuse me, the the people of God in the the wilderness, what we see from this verse uh, is that it was disobedience that kept the people of Israel out of the promised land. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, I just got through reading all of these chapters, and it seems like the author says that it was uh, a lack of faith. It was unbelief. It was a, a hardened heart. And to that, I would say, yes, that's true. And it was disobedience, right? Well, well how do we walk in obedience or in disobedience? Well, it's what flows out of what our heart is, right? If, if our hearts are hard, we will be disobedient. If our hearts are soft towards the Lord, then we will obey him and follow his word faithfully. Okay, these two truths are not in competition. What we do with our lives always flows out of what we believe in our hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, everyone here, I think, except for maybe some visitors that I don't know, but I think everyone here would profess to believe in Jesus. Well, that's all well and good. But my question for you is, how do you know that your belief is an accurate one? How do you know that you're not just saying what you were raised up to say because you grew up in the Christian South? How do you know that your faith is real? Well, one of the easiest ways that you can answer that question is by asking yourself if you are obeying God. If you are actively cheating on your wife or husband, if you are actively trying to use your business to rob people, to try to earn ill-gotten gain, if you are actively harboring hate in your heart towards someone else, like racism or hate for another brother or sister in Christ, and I could just keep going, if you are actively, with no remorse, watching pornography, if you are doing this or doing that or doing this or doing that, friends, you are walking in disobedience. And that should give you great concern. That should cause you to pause and ask yourself if what you think is really faith in your heart is actually faith at all our disobedience will keep us out of heaven. It will prevent us from entering into that final rest that God has from us. But this morning, you are receiving a warning. And the Lord might be using this word right here, right now, to get you to reconsider and to repent and to follow him more faithfully. Point number six. We can cling to Jesus. We can hold fast to Jesus if we exhort one another. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. 
He says, actually, let's start reading in verse 12 because the context is really helpful. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So first of all, notice, he says, take care, brothers. So he refers to them as brothers. Why? Because the author of Hebrews doesn't have x-ray vision. He can't look at people and tell whether or not they're Christians, whether or not they have a truly regenerate heart. He doesn't know that. But what he can do is issue a warning to the entire covenant community, and he's charitably treating them all as brothers. He's saying, listen, I'm going to assume that every one of you that professes to be a Christian is actually a Christian, so I'm going to call you brothers. But what you need to do is you need to take care. You need to make sure that you don't have an unbelieving heart. But then he goes on in verse 13 and he tells us exactly how we can do that. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't know who among us will actually end up in heaven. Hopefully, charitably, I think it's going to be all of us, but I don't know. But one of the things that I'm going to do to make sure that if anybody, gets to, uh, if anybody doesn't make it to heaven, it's not on my watch, is I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to warn you. Why? Because sin is deceitful. You can think that you're following Jesus and not realize that, in fact, you are on the road to hell. It can deceive you. You can assume that this Christian life that you've been living for the last 20 years is pleasing to the Lord, when in fact, on the last day, you will stand before the Lord and he will say, turn away from me, for I never knew you. Now, it's not my job as a pastor only to exhort you. God's word teaches here and elsewhere that we as covenant community members exhort one another. We speak the truth to one another in love. Sometimes that means, hey, sister, I see your improvement. You're doing great. Keep going. Push hard after Jesus. Sometimes that means I look at you and I say, brother, you are slipping, and I'm worried about your soul. I'm worried that sin might be deceiving you. I'm worried that your heart might be hard. I'm worried that you're not going to make it into God's rest. This is how God has designed us to lock arms together and march onward towards heaven. This is why a healthy church is so important. It's so important. If you are in a church where people are not having these kinds of conversations regularly, you are in a church that is ill-equipping you to make it to heaven. People talk a lot about biblical, authentic community, you know. And I, I, I see a lot of stuff on, you know, social media where, like, I, I think a lot of times, especially young Christians, I'm not trying to pick on young Christians but I am, so I will. You, you think that like community is just whatever you can like take a picture of and put it on Instagram. You know, oh, we all had a great time at the thing where we get locked in a room and try to make it out, right? And I'm using that as an example because I've done that, all right? I cheated, by the way. Had to repent of that. I ripped open the thing. and was like, oh, I got a clue. Okay. But that's not community. Community is when we really know each other, when we really love each other, and we are really willing to have difficult conversations with one another to make sure that we all get to heaven. Sometimes that will look like us going to get locked in a room and try to find our way out, and I hope it does. I hope we have barbecues and birthday parties and cleanup days and all those other great things. But don't mistake those things for true community. This is true community, exhorting one another as long as it is called today. What does that mean, as long as it is called today? Well, it just means that until Jesus comes back, today is the day of salvation, and it will be the day of salvation until Jesus comes back and issues his final rest. When you read the beginning of the Bible, the creation account in Genesis, you'll see that uh, at each day of creation, it says there was morning and then there was evening. There was morning and then there was evening. There was morning and then there was evening. But on the seventh day, when God entered into rest, it did not say that there was morning and evening. Why? Well, because that was supposed to be the forever day. But then sin ruined it. And when Jesus came, his last words on the cross were, it is finished. And I think one of the things that those, that, that those words mean, that phrase means, is that on the cross, Christ once again purchased the ability for us to enter into that 
forever rest. And that's why Jesus, when he showed up on the scene, he said, listen, everyone who repents of their sins and who trusts in me, there they find rest. Jesus is, is ushering all of humanity, all those who were turned from their sins and trust in him, he's ushering us all into that forever rest that we were supposed to have with God in the garden. Friends, you need to know that the opposite of that rest will be terrible. And all of those who are found outside of that rest will greatly regret not trusting in Jesus. This offer is available to everyone, everyone in this room. It is still today. Do not think that you have tomorrow. You may not. But you have today. And all that God requires from you to enter into that rest is repentance and faith. There are variations of Christianity, abhorrent variations of Christianity that say that the way you enter into God's rest is by working harder. No. That's a false gospel. It's anti-rest. All that God requires of you is that you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And his rest will be made available to you forever. Point number seven, we must strive. Look at chapter four, verse 11. It says, let us therefore, so therefore, in light of everything I've just said, all this theology that I've given you, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now this may sound like a contradiction of what I just said. Because strive is a word that means like to wrestle. It, it was used in the ancient world to speak of like wrestlers who would go and, you know, you got three minutes to try to get this guy on his back. You, you exert all of your physical force, right? It's, it's describing a, a real battle. Well, you have to understand that we don't strive to enter into salvation, but we do strive to enter into rest. We do strive, once we have been called by Christ and saved by Christ, to ensure that we remain with Christ. And that is not contradictory to grace at all. Paul tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he also says, for it is God who is at work in you. There is a version of Christianity, friends, that says that we don't have to fight, we don't have to strive, because Jesus already fought for us. Friends, that is a distortion of how the gospel works. We don't have to fight to be saved by Jesus, but we do have to fight to make sure that we get to heaven. We do have to fight our flesh. Paul tells us to discipline our flesh. He tells us to buffet our bodies. He tells us to run the race like an athlete who's determined to win. He tells us to train ourselves like soldiers who are getting prepared for war. Just turn with me to Philippians 2 real quick. I actually want to read the verse instead of just quoting it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have all, always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, okay? So there's you, there's your responsibility, that's what you need to do, you need to look at your life and make sure that you are actually following Jesus faithfully, and you need to do it with a, a certain amount of fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. There's the imperative and the indicative command again, uh, situation again. The imperative, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The indicative, why, how, for? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So this is the, this is the really good news of sanctification. The really good news of sanctification is that your striving is not your own. It's that as you work, God promises that he's working through you. And your ability to work, your ability to fight, your ability to strive is drawn from God and his power in your life. Finally, point number eight, fear. Uh, yeah, go to chapter four, verse one of Hebrews. 
So, we read, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, go over real quick to verse 16. So, first of all, I want us to notice in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, let us. Let us fear. Now look at verse 16. Let us, again, then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I told you in, uh, in our introductory sermon to Hebrews that we have to embrace a certain tension of dual motivation in this Christian life. There are some who will try to tell you that there is no room in the Christian faith for fear. Right? They'll tell you that what we need is to positively motivate people through rewards. But then there are those who only rely on fear. It's just, it's hellfire and brimstone all the time. It's, it's lashes and God is a pure disciplinarian. But, but again, what we see this morning is that, is that we need both. We need fear and rewards. We need fear and confidence, right? We need a healthy, measure of, uh, a healthy measure of both in order to follow Jesus faithfully. And I think, again, that's one of the strong benefits of church membership. In church me- membership, we, we have uh, good reason to fear because we have other people in our lives who are willing to point out when we're sinning and when we're messing up and they're willing to be honest with us. But we also have good reason to be confident. Because when you become a member of a church, what you see is that an entire body of people look at you and they look at your life and they say, yeah, we think you're a Christian. That's what church membership is. It's not a club where you pay your dues and then you show up on Sunday or you don't show up on Sunday, but all that matters is I put my money in the tithe bucket, okay? Church membership is God's discipleship program. It is God's assurance of salvation plan. It is God's design for perseverance. And one of those things that God has built into church membership is the ability to have real confidence in your confession of faith. Because as we look at each other, we give each other the assurance that yes, we really are following Jesus. This is also why church discipline is so important. In church discipline, we come together as a church and we look at a person's life who's living in sin, who's not holding fast to their confession, rather they're holding fast to their sin, and we say, brother, sister, we're worried. We don't think you should be confident. We think you should fear. See how those two things work together in church membership? Now, if you're a member of a church where they don't practice church discipline, I would encourage you to find a different church because God has built church discipline into the design of his church. It's in his word abundantly. And over and over again, it tells us the value of church discipline. Now, uh, at the beginning of our service, we read Psalm 95. Psalm 95 uh, is a call to worship. That's what we use it for this morning. We use it as a call to worship. But it's also a warning, right? And that's what the author here quotes in chapter 3, verse 7. That's the end of Psalm 95. We didn't read that this morning, right? So this call to worship begins by saying, look how great God is and look how marvelous God is and make sure that you praise and worship and love God according to what he deserves. But then it finishes by warning people to make sure that they actually have hearts that are capable of doing that very thing. So look at chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quoting Psalm 95, so there's a good argument about the inspiration of Scripture if anybody wants to mark that one down. As the Holy Spirit says through the psalmist in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, this is for you this morning, for you, members of Sixth Avenue, this is for you, brothers and sisters who may be visiting, professing Christians. Today, if you hear his voice through his word, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They saw the Lord. They knew he was real. They observed his power for 40 years over and over and over again, and yet they still rebelled. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, We sang Come Thou Fountain this morning. That lyric in there uh, that hits me so hard every single time, and I try not to overuse it in sermons, but where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How can you sing that and read this and not just have this feeling like, yes, this is my experience? I preach the gospel to unbelievers all the time, but in this morning's sermon, I just want to make sure that every member of this church, including every visitor, understands that I am preaching the gospel to you. And you are prone to wander. You are prone to leave the God that you claim that you love. So it is my prayer that the Lord will take all of our hearts and seal them. That God will keep us and protect us and guide us like a good shepherd. That he will lead us through this trial and tribulation and temptation in the spiritual wilderness where we find ourselves. And that he will deliver us all the way home we finally get to stop working and we can rest with him forever. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we have uh, sung and read and heard much this morning. We pray that you would use it. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would use it to help us follow Jesus more faithfully so that your name might be glorified and the nations might come to know you. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing together. He will hold me fast.